And so uh, PMIs are very good ones too. Um, most of the ISM stuff, you know, if you look at from uh, general businesses or small businesses have been uh, dismal as well. And so there's a lot of issues in, in those parts of the data that are yet to be reflected on fundamentals of companies. But when that comes, most of it is going to be already in the price. And so I think investors need to be reacting ahead of that. Uh, and, and then on top of it, you have the Federal Reserve tightening, which is a huge part of the, the thesis. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. the Fed is being completely uh, forced uh, to do more than, than I think they wanted to uh, because of CPI rates being so high. And we know inflation is higher than what CPI is being reported. Welcome to Gold Silver Pros, where you'll learn the ins and outs of the gold and silver markets. Searching for the best precious metals deal? Our affiliates are of the utmost trust, quality, and highest customer service in the industry. Shop with our trusted partner, Arc Silver. Access special deals on silver, gold, and platinum through our website or call 307 264 9441. Hey, everybody, this is Rob Keens with GoldSilverPros.com. We are back. It is August 11th, 2022. I have a returning guest, Javi Costa, who is portfolio manager and partner with Crestcat Capital. And we always like to have him on because he does such great economic research and really knows what the pulse of the economy is. Uh, Tavi, how are you doing today? Great, uh, Rob. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. Thank you very much. So I know you and I were talking about hitting the circuit and doing some conferences later this year. Uh, whereabouts are you nowadays? Are you traveling or are you at home or, or what are you doing? I'm, I'm just at home. I'm in Denver, Colorado. So, okay. uh, yeah. Awesome. So what you do for Crestcat is awesome. You put out tons of great research and I wanted to share just one of the pieces of information you put out. Of course, you have a very good Twitter channel and you're talking here. This is a tweet that came out, uh, oh, last month, a few days ago. You're yeah. talking about the rise and fall of the consumer Household demand for goods and services is poised to fall off a cliff and the economy can't handle it. And this is vicious, stagflationary environment. Makes sense. It's a narrative I've heard before. Do you think, Tavi, that we're going to stick with stagflation for a while? Or do you think that that eventually morphs into something else? I do. Uh, we're not, we haven't seen yet that the classic stagflation problem, which is caused by labor markets deteriorating along with inflation uh, we're seeing certainly the contraction of economy in real terms um, and mostly is caused by inflation and not yet so much in nominal terms. We're not seeing uh, any sort of, uh, of, of significant declines. However, um, I think we're going to be there. And that's because of most leading indicators are pointing towards that direction. Mm -hmm. That letter is, was mostly about what I think is going to cause that contraction, which I think it's been somewhat priced in or uh, starting to show up in some of the leading indicators, such as ISM manufacturing. You got PMIs now at the lowest levels uh, since we saw back in the global financial crisis and also during the COVID recession. The difference right now is that we're also seeing the tightening policy here from the Federal Reserve, which is yet to create an impact, uh, a downward impact in the economy as well. Uh, that latter was, uh, was really specifically talking about the consumer. Uh, I think the consumer is getting absolutely squeezed and it's very close to a breaking point where we're seeing cost of living being so historically elevated uh, that is starting to hurt consumption of households. And so you have mortgage rates increasing significantly, you have mm -hmm. consumer sentiment declining, but more importantly, you have savings uh, rates relative to disposable income 
which used to be somewhere close to uh, 20, even 30% in the last two years rel uh, relative to disposable income. And now it's below 4%. And that's a big deal because uh, there's not a lot of cash in the sign lines anymore. So you're starting to see credit card loans and, and, and consumer credit in general is starting to rise uh, in order to, uh, to fund most of those purchases that we're seeing so far. And so those are beginnings of, of, of a lot of issues uh, that I think are going to cause this contraction of, of growth in economy uh, at a time when we are yet to see labor markets begin to really fall off a cliff. And that's going to be unemployment rate rising and some other issues, which we're starting to see some of those problems on the margin already, in mm -hmm. initial jobless claims and so forth. So that's kind of the, the premise of that view. Yeah, a couple of points there. I wanted to start with uh, free cash, and then I want to talk about unemployment. So we talk, when I used to write for Seeking Alpha, one of the biggest things that we talked about, where's the cash? Is it on the sidelines? What's it free? Because that's what everybody wants to know. If there's a lot of free cash, it means there could be a next big boom in investment. Certainly, you said we're not seeing that. So what does that pretend for, for the traditional asset market, stocks and bonds and things like that? Will the consumers be able to participate in those? Uh, or will they be fighting basically just to make ends meet with you know their everyday purchases? Well, the, the growth in the economy has been so robust, but all in nominal terms. And so, um, you know, after what I think it was one of the strongest um, economies we've had in, in history as far as 2021. But again, it, it, it's there's a huge caveat to this, which is mm -hmm. the stimulative program that we saw with the fiscal stimulus, the Federal Reserve doubling their balance sheet, uh, um, and so. All those uh, those those packages certainly had a, an impact on on demand from from consumers, and that's what drove most of that uh, strength. Um, now we're not seeing the same degree anymore. In fact, we're going to start seeing the Fed rolling off already started rolling off their balance sheet assets. Um, it should be declining substantially starting in September. They will be doubling down on that. Um, rates have been increasing, and so things have have changed drastically. I would say. Um, as far as the consumer goes, I mean, I think consumer uh, in general was looking pretty good in 2021. We saw most of the imbalances that we had prior to COVID uh, in households was actually transferred to the government. So the government has taken on most of those issues when it comes to the debt problem uh, away from the households uh, side. But now it's starting to grow again. So we're starting to see household debt to GDP to GDP or debt to income ratios beginning to rise, given the fact that not only income is not growing as fast as as, as inflation, but also uh, we're you know we're now seeing you know the consumer is getting squeezed uh, by by many fronts, and so the the important question that all leads to is what is that going to do to corporate earnings because corporate earnings remain at all time highs remain uh, really uh, really strong in nominal terms again. Uh, in real terms, most uh, of the earnings are actually contracting, especially consumer discretionary, which is one of the most important parts of the economy mm -hmm. right now is actually contracting the most since we've seen in other recessionary times. Mm -hmm. And so that begs the question, what is that going to do to uh, earnings over time here? I think earnings are very close to start uh, contracting significantly, given the fact that we have you know, so many different parts of also squeezes of margins from material costs rising, wages and salaries. Uh, and now you have this risk of the consumption starting to decline and you have the dollar. The dollar has been moving higher relative to other fiat currencies. 
uh, which uh, has a, a tendency of, of hurting earnings over time as well. So all those, uh, those variables are playing a big role into uh, what I think it's going to be a very difficult economy, a very uh, tough environment in about six months from now when we start seeing the data in labor markets begin to deteriorate, putting the Fed in a box where what, what are they going to do? Inflation is likely to be continue to be elevated. Now labor markets and employment rates are starting to rise and the recession talks are actually going to be actions because that recession is going to be most likely uh, in place in terms of the downturn more normally. So we've seen, Tavi, a little bit of a reversal in the fortunes of a couple of headline economic numbers. We've seen a reduction in CPI down to 8.5%. We saw some creation of what I call short-term jobs that feeds the U6 unemployment number. Of course, our, our labor force participation rate is still below what it was previous to the last recession, and the media doesn't talk about that. But on, on the subject of employment, just showing one of the, the tweets you have up here, largest three-month decline in job openings in the history of the data. Uh, can you explain this one real quick and why does that particular statistic matter? Well, I think the elephant in the room for that uh, is for that number is is just the fact that job openings have been so high. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to see that most technology companies and other businesses are actually overstaffed. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's hard to believe because there are other parts of the industry of the economy that are not overstaffed at all. So you have natural resource industries that are completely understaffed. And so it's it's difficult for a lot of investors to really understand that that thesis. But what's happening right now is that most of the mega cap companies, the larger companies like Walmart, uh, are starting. I mean, Walmart employee employs over um, over two million people. And so uh, not only you're having that pressure from labor unions and so forth, but also you're starting to see the pressure from growth itself is starting to hurt uh, those businesses to continue to hire as much as they were hiring and. Labor markets are lagging indicators most of the times, and most of the mm -hmm. labor indicators are actually lagging indicators. And so uh, it, is, it is incredible when you have no farm payrolls rising over 500,000 uh, just, just in the last month, uh, and, and folks are seeing this as, as extremely bullish. Uh, but but this, is, uh, this, is, this is not the right way to look at this. I mean, we saw that in 2000, early 2000, right at the peak of the tech bubble in March of 2000, uh, we also saw an increase in on-farm payrolls of very close to 500K and so, or 500,000 people. So that's very clear to me uh, that that's not what you should be focusing on. You should be mm -hmm. focusing mostly uh, on leading indicators, there are starting to show that we have that deceleration of growth in some points, like new orders. You know, look at ISM new orders; they're collapsing right now. That that's a very very strong and good indicator to look at uh, that leads a lot of other of macro data. And so uh, PMIs are very good ones too. Um, most of the ISM stuff, you know, if you look at from uh, general businesses or small businesses, have been. Uh, dismal as well. And so there's a lot of issues in, in those parts of the data that are yet to be reflected on fundamentals of companies. But when that comes, most of it is going to be already in the price. And so I think investors need to be reacting ahead of that. Uh, and, and then on top of it, you have the Federal Reserve tightening, which is a huge part of the, the thesis. I mean, it's mm -hmm. that is being completely uh, forced 
to do more than, than I think they wanted to uh, because of CPI rates being so high. And we know inflation is higher than what CPI is being reported. But remember, in 73-74 recession, which was an inflationary problem, the market had to fall somewhere close to 50% until we saw inflation starting to really trend uh, in a downward trend. Uh, which was started back in twenty in, in 1974. That only uh, stayed for about two to three years until we saw inflation roaring back, come roaring back in the later parts of the 70s uh, uh, decade. And so um, I don't think we've seen a lot of damage yet in the economy, especially from the consumption side, to really cause inflation to trend uh, downward uh, going forward. And so that is my issue. So I think there's more to go here in terms of that. And so equity markets are probably uh, yet uh, in a lot of risk to uh, to uh, to the downside. Yeah, and I want to talk about inflation here for a moment. I'm going to bring up a story that came out in Zero Hedge. Um, it's talking about inflation, a three-act play. And essentially the chart, chart shows, and I'll blow this up a little bit, that inflation, when it comes over the long term, takes a long time to work its way out. Uh, according to this article, it thinks we're in the first stage because we're you know, not quite 30 months into it. Uh, but probably it's going to continue to get a lot higher and it's something that takes time. What do you suppose is the reason why periods of high inflation take so long to work their way out? Tavi, is it basically the manufacturing segment of the economy? Is it just how prices are transmitted? Why does it take so long you know, for that inflation story to work out? Mm -hmm. I think the easiest answer is perhaps because it's not transitory. It's just it is it is really being caused by uh, what I call it four. I used to call it three, but I really think it's four pillars of inflation. Uh, mm -hmm. You have the wages and salaries growth, uh, which is something very difficult to reverse. And a lot of people are saying, "Well, look, the wages and salaries are growing." but not as much as inflation, but that mm. doesn't matter. That fills inflation regardless. Uh, that's the whole point. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and that is very unlikely to go the other way because we've seen 30 years already of wages and salaries growth actually in a declining trend. And now we're starting to see that uh, continue to increase. And so I think this is just the beginning on that one. Uh, the second one has been uh, the natural resources uh, industries, which is uh, to me is an opportunity but also uh, a huge part of, uh, of this equation where uh, we're seeing the long-term CapEx trends for most of natural resource industries actually in a declining, uh, a declining for, for over a decade. And so mm -hmm. uh, we haven't seen much of that improvement. I mean, uh, the whole talk that commodities have somewhat declined in the last uh, three months and most of the cyclical commodities have declined significantly. Um, the mm -hmm. problem is that structural issues have not been resolved. We're not seeing energy companies uh, uh, putting on CapEx's uh, numbers uh, that were anywhere close to what we saw in prior peaks. Mm -hmm. Remember, the economy is much larger than it was in the prior peak of energy, uh, especially since the global financial crisis when uh, CapEx was, was somewhere closer. Just the E&P companies that are trading in the S&P 500, uh, they had somewhere close to $140 billion of CapEx. Today is sub $40 billion. So, you know, that amazes me. It's not just E&P companies uh, in, in the energy space. You can look at that in the metals, precious metals, base metals, agricultural commodities as well. When you look at those companies that are involved in that part of the business. And so, you know, that, that is the second pillar. The third pillar has to do with fiscal stimulus. Uh, we're seeing reckless amount of government spending. 
uh, when you look at that, just relative to what we saw, even inflation adjusted all the way back to the 70s, um, it's nowhere close. It's about three to four times inflation adjusted the annual uh, number of, of government spending today uh, than it was back in the, those times. And so that is that should have an impact on, on, uh, on inflation, especially when you're seeing an inflation act <laughs> uh, being passed uh, here to reduce inflation, uh, where it really looks like more of what's going to feel inflation going forward. Um, you know, uh, so, so those are the, the three. The, the fourth one, which is part of a huge debate in the macro community, which is, is this more like the 40s or more like the 70s? Now, the 40s, mm -hmm. we had a transitory inflationary problem, uh, which I think was mostly driven by uh, pillars of inflation that were not there, uh, meaning one of the big ones, which I'm going to refer to now, is deglobalization. We were at the end of deglobalization in the mid-40s. That was the end of World War II. We're not there today. This, is, this kind of seems like the beginning of a deglobalized world, mm -hmm. in my view. And so we're yet to see developed economies uh, not take advantage of cheap labor from China and, and, and even Taiwan and even other parts of Asia or India and so forth, and actually have to bring back manufacturing to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Did anybody make any calculations of what's that going to do to commodities? I mean, how do we, re, you know, going to rebuild and reshape the manufacturing and infrastructure plants here in the U.S.? without causing a demand, a major side of the demand uh, for commodities in the following five to 10 years. So all of that is still in, you know, gonna be feeding into uh, the market. And so to me, it's hard to believe this inflationary problem is gonna be transitory. We're, you know, yeah, we're gonna see waves like we saw in the seventies, but I think it's, it's gonna be uh, still infiltrating an economy going forward. Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to go back to something you said about CapEx. So to relate a story uh, with uh, what I consider a utility company, the telecoms, they used to work for Verizon and they would spend anywhere, you know, I saw on their report, financial reports, anywhere from 17 to $20 billion a year as a single company on their network. That was their CapEx expense. And that was just poker stakes. That's what kept them in the game of being a good telecommunications company. And they're known as a dividend company. Of course, you see here, you have a nice chart about the gold miners, they're paying more dividends and utility stocks for the first time in the history of the data. So explain to me, Tavi, how an industry that is so down that hasn't gotten the money that apparently is an industry people you know, aren't flooding into in, in the last 10 years is doing a better job with dividends than multi-billion dollar you know, utility companies and telecom companies who have been at the top you know, of, the, of the tech heap uh, for many years or the top of the stock heap for many years. What, what does all this mean? How can gold companies provide a better, you know, when, when they're not performing in the market as well as some of these other uh, industries? Well, why do you buy utility companies is because it has predictable free cash flow, supposedly. Mm -hmm. uh, they have very long-term contracts with the government in most times. Mm -hmm. And they also pay very high dividends and they're supposedly defensive companies. Mm -hmm. The issue is that utilities actually decline along with equity markets in most recessions and economic downturns that we have. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is the huge bonus of buying the utility stock is because of the dividend yield that they pay, which is mm -hmm. uh, historically tends to be really high. The problem is a lot of companies that are not famously known for paying dividends, such as gold companies, are so cheap. And prices that they're actually paying more dividends 
than, than those companies in terms of the yield basis. And so, but that's not, you know, that's not how you value a business. I mean, you value it by free cash flow and free cash flow yield for most of the miners, gold miners, base metal miners in general, they're all trading a very, very attractive multiples, one of the highest we've seen in history, mm -hmm. particularly recently with the decline in gold miners and base metal miners too. And so those are all important parts, but there's structural issues in the entire uh, mining industry as well. I mean, I mentioned this the other day that some people are starting to catch on to this, but it's extremely important to know that the industry of mining, which I very involved with, uh, one of the things I, I, I don't like about it is, is, is how even insiders, how they have been behaving. I mean, look at Newmont. When was the last time any of the insiders of, of Newmont, their car, the corporate management team, have purchased a share of Newmont in the last seven years? None. They haven't purchased one single share. Um, and so those companies are doing massive buybacks and doing a lot of dividends. They're doing more dividends and buybacks than what they do on CapEx. They're barely investing in greenfield uh, projects. So when was the last time one of those major companies have developed a new project? We haven't seen any of that. So those are all issues we're going to see in this industry going forward, creating real structural problems and maybe, uh, in my view, creating also an opportunity for investors to uh, look for exposure in exploration phase companies uh, that are so inefficiently priced, in my view, which is an opportunity, uh, but also uh, extremely attractive in prices to have high probability of having world-class discoveries. But look, this is a problem in the whole market. And this the whole thing about buying back shares, uh, especially at ridiculous multiples, uh, mm -hmm. from most of the, the other companies, I'm not even talking about mining, uh, is, is what we call financial engineering uh, that has been happening for many, many years. Mm -hmm. You can even make it perhaps a, an argument and say, well, at least Newmont is buying back its shares at very cheap multiples. That's fine. That's actually, that's actually a fine approach. But I do think that where prices are, I think those companies should have been extremely aggressive right now when it comes to their M&A uh, uh, you know, in, in, in general, we're not seeing much of that activity when they should be greedy and should be buying up most of the high quality projects that we've seen so far in the exploration phase that have proved to have uh, some of those uh, very interesting discoveries. But there's so much shareholder pressure right now on generating cash flow. And, and, and so they're not being able to invest in those greenfield projects right now. So you know, those are all the issues in the industry that we're seeing from different pockets. They're all going to get resolved at some point, but, um, you know, it creates a lot of opportunities. And I think that's the bottom line, but, but we're seeing this across, across the entire industry. Yeah, I agree with you. And our good friend Kai Hoffman who runs Soar Financial puts out an index looking at the junior mining space and specifically how much money is coming into it. And if you go back to 2011, we're sitting at about half. We've been rotating around that 50% line in terms of investment into new projects, junior development in the precious metal space. And that can't survive, Tavi, because if we're not getting the new fines and we're not getting the new metal, eventually run into shortages. So let me paint you a picture. Silver Institute comes out and it's still on their websites, did this video this week. We're now in the fourth year of deficit of silver produced versus what's used every year. You see fiscal silver supplies coming off of COMEX and LBMA. We talked about that this week. They're draining. About 100 million ounces has come off of COMEX in the last year and a half. So there aren't a lot of supplies of the precious metals. 
at, at a time in which we're not making new discoveries. You don't see a lot of M&A activity like we would have expected. I think R Rick Roll two years ago was calling for more M&A. It still hasn't happened. So it almost seems to to me like that industry is just like stuck somewhere. It's like it's in the mud and it needs, you know, somebody with a big rig to come tow it out. What do you think is going to be the catalyst for getting, you know, the gold and silver stocks out, out of it? I mean, the, the gold stocks are making money. Uh, the silver stocks are, do, are doing fine right now overall. What's going to drag them out of this this little rut that they've been in for the last few years? I think everyone is scared because of the price of materials and the price of services mm -hmm. in general have gone up a lot. And I think companies have been supposedly with prices, at least if you look at gold prices today relative to the last uh, two decades, is actually a really interesting price for most of those producers to be making money. But mm -hmm. They are worried about the, the the scenario that we have today, and are worried about um, really spending a lot of money right now on on new investments. And so, mm -hmm. it, it's it's amazing to me that the government has not stepped in at all on especially critical metals and other critical commodities that mm -hmm. we need to use to function the economy. On if I was in the government, I would certainly have probably created some sort of organization. Um, to help those companies to have the capital and make sure that they're investing in new projects and so forth. There is zero incentive from the government to undoing that right now. And so, in fact, I think if you ask any politician, they can barely put two sentences together about mining. And so, you know, how do we how do we go from here? It's, it's, it's quite difficult. And so most of the companies in the mining space, I think, are worried. And I think they have um, some uh, some validity to having that view because mm -hmm. it is worry. I mean, it, it, we don't know where we are. It's kind of a not you know kind of uncharted territory when it comes to the macro environment. It's the first time we're facing this level of debt in the government, along with inflation problem, along with a, a speculative environment uh, problem that we had very similarly in, in in the tech bubble in the late '90s. And so, how do you behave in this in this place is is very difficult, but I do think we're seeing big trends uh, evolving here. What, what are those? The, the growth to value, that's one of them. The 60-40 the portfolios that completely ignore commodities and just look at stocks and bonds, mm -hmm. um, those things are shifting. So we're starting to see capital allocators uh, you know, rethink their portfolio positioning, rethink about what is prioritization? What is, should we be looking at growth or should we be looking at margins and profit margins and companies that actually have value mm -hmm. uh, rather than just, you know, unsustainable multiples uh, with unsustainable and unrealistic um, um, uh, goals in terms of, of growth. And so I think we're starting to see that shift. Uh, that shift, it was very uh, pronounced six months ago. It sort of went away recently with this rebound in the markets, which was mostly driven by technology. Uh, we're not mm -hmm. seeing retail businesses and all those other leading parts of the of the economy, uh, which retail is one of them, uh, leading the way to the upside on a relative term with S&P, meaning if you look at retail versus S&P, they've been declining that trend. Uh, very different than we saw in March 2020. And so all those are issues that we're seeing that all tie back to the this uh, uh, extreme level of conservatism coming from the mining industries in, in, in general. So um, I don't know when it's going to change, but I think as we see a world where prioritizes profitability uh, uh, rather than growth, 
I think we're going to see most of uh, the capital starting to really flow into these industries, and they will, at some point, in my view, benefit from this macro environment. Yeah, I agree with you, and that's the bullish case, and certainly it has to happen. You can't underfund commodities forever because without them, the economy can't run, and there will be a snapback. And the the strength of the snapback will be directly correlated to how much underfunding we've had the last 10 years. So certainly it looks like there has to be a lot of positivity coming to resource markets. One of the people that we interview, uh, Tavi, uh, that's been involved with, with this debate regarding or the thought that America should secure its resources and even potentially designate critical ones is Ann Bridges. She's a former executive in Silicon Valley that's been on our program, has written books uh, about rare earths and about uh, the resource market. One of the things that she points out is if you do not secure resources, somebody else will, and it becomes almost a national security issue. And given the geopolitical problems we have right now, the sanctions on Russia and stuff, it's, it would seem to behoove, Tavi, our government to begin saying, okay, need to secure our rare, rare earths, need to secure our farmland, need to secure oil and natural gas, need to secure precious metals, uranium, you name it. Uh, if, if America doesn't do that, how, in your mind, does that affect the resource markets going forward? Is it going to take somebody like China coming in, buying stuff up to get that jump started? Is it going to take somebody else jump starting our resources if we just, you know, we don't do it? We continue to ignore it. Well, I think there's a lot of potential things that can drive liquidity. And, and the necessity is certainly one of them. We're seeing the political shift in terms of narrative from the Green Revolution, still very strong, but mm -hmm. certainly things have shifted. And, and understanding that we do need oil, we do need production of critical natural resources to function the economy. Um, I think we're starting to see different partnerships, which trust me, I don't think that that's a positive as far as uh, uh, those, you know, what's the difference between dealing with Russia and dealing with Venezuela? Mm -hmm. You know, those are very, very similar uh, regimes in terms of, uh, of, of their political leadership. Um, and, and potential for destruction in, in the geopolitical world. And so, um, but, but it's, you know, that those extremes and those, those levels of, of, of necessity is, is certainly what uh, triggers, uh, you know, uh, I would say most uh, economies to, to make that, those types of uh, developments in terms of mm -hmm. relationships. And so now, other thing that creates a lot of liquidity for the industry that has done in the past is, let's say, a major discovery you know let's say you have a company that creates that makes a major discovery somewhere could be a developed economy especially in a developed uh, world um, i think could drive a lot of liquidity to the space i certainly have my candidates that i think it could drive it and it, it, that happened in the past i mean we just haven't seen that level of discovery that creates a new barrier creates a new newmont uh, and, and, and so that was, was on the back of that, you have all those investors making a lot of money while well, you attracts attention, you attract, so well, what's the next one then? And so that, those are the things that, that creates that, uh, that cascade effect, uh, that perhaps could, could, uh, attract a lot of, uh, investment, uh, into, into the space. Uh, but, you know, I think it's inevitable that we're going to see a world where every country needs to be rethinking their relationships, but also rethinking uh, their own necessities again is when it comes to natural resources. And some countries will make decisions uh, that are, I think, are going to, go into, uh, uh, surprise a lot of people. I'll use one example. China 
you know, has been uh, pressing on electric vehicles for some time now. And the, the, the thing about electric vehicles that I think people make fun of is, is what do we use to, to uh, power those, those vehicles, right? I mean, most of the energy used, especially in countries like uh, Europe, um, uh, uh, European countries, is, is actually coal-based uh, energy in some other places in the U.S. as well. Uh, now, uh, the, the, the question is, what if this is being done by design? And I'm not referring to a Western economies. I'm referring to China. What if China is really trying to, uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, to use electric vehicles to, to reduce their dependability and also reliability on oil? That could be, you know, that, that mm-hmm. could be a thing. That could be a narrative that is not in the markets right now that people haven't really thought about it. Yeah, it will take some time until, let's see, you know, most uh, uh, Chinese economy would be using uh, uh, electric vehicles. Um, but, but you, you know, that, that could be by design. And that's just another example of, of, of how countries are really rethinking here uh, how to uh, hunker down and, and really think about, well, how do we avoid those reliabilities that we had with other economies that maybe are not, shouldn't be uh, relied on um, and, uh, and, and change the game a little bit when it comes to balance of powers in, in countries uh, mm. in the world today. And so those things are likely to happen. I mean, a you know, green revolution will work until you have a war, until you have mm. a geopolitical problem. And then other things will be prioritized over the environment. Unfortunately or fortunately, who, you know, whoever's opinion it is, it doesn't matter. That's just history. And so yeah. in, in this case, I think this is likely to be, uh, you know, by design of what's happening in, in places like China. Well, Tavi, thank you so much for the interview. We appreciate it uh, for your commentary on what's going on. How do people reach out to you if they're interested in getting more information about what you do for Crestcap? Well, Rob, thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, mm-hmm. You can find me on Twitter, at Tavi Costa is my handle. And then you can also find on uh, our website, crestcap.net. You can find a lot of letters and a lot of research that we put out. Uh, that I think is very detailed in terms of what we think, our views, and uh, what we think is likely to uh, unfold here. All right. Awesome, Tavi. Thank you so much. We'll have you back on the program. My pleasure. Thank you. 